that was definitely in my mind, but I'm also in, in very centrally located now. It's a small city uh, called Doral. It's just west of the airport. It's right near the Trump Doral Hotel. <laughs> uh, and uh, the, the interesting thing is it's in the, the only real industrial area of Miami-Dade County. So I'm literally minutes away from a bunch of manufacturing facilities. The, there's about 400 aviation companies, flowers that come in from Latin America and they get packaged here. So all these, at least for me as a hemp surgeon, you typically only work a few minutes from here. It just makes sense. Uh, I mean, before I was in a very residential part near one of the big hospitals, but my patients were traveling. This location really makes a lot more sense. This is the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast, the podcast that brings together leaders in healthcare and investment real estate to consider the possibilities and future at the intersection of practicing medicine and healthcare real estate investment returns. Welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. I am your host, Trisha Talbot. As a healthcare real estate advisor to providers and investors, the best solutions occur when the two collaborate together as partners in delivering better patient care. Providers can deliver care to their patients when and where they need it, and investors realize the returns to build and manage facilities. We explore changes in medicine and wellness, the future of healthcare, and using real estate as a strategic and financial tool. I'm very excited to bring you the next two weeks of episodes interviewing Dr. Alejandro Padilla. Dr. Padilla is an orthopedic surgeon focusing on hand and upper extremities based out of Miami, Florida. He operates Padilla Hand to Shoulder Center, the Surgery Center at Doral, and OrthoNow, an immediate orthopedic care center. During the pandemic, he finished his book called Healthcare from the Trenches, an insider account of the complex barriers of U.S. from the providers and patients' perspective. His goal is to generate awareness and educate us on how insurance companies and government regulation are causing healthcare costs to skyrocket and how it affects a clinician's ability to provide care. Alejandro, welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. First off, I feel I need to apologize for calling you a provider after reading your book. I'm just not sure how to connect clinician with a real estate term off the top of my head right now, but uh, uh, apologies if that's inappropriate. But uh, I didn't know until reading your book how it's better to uh, term to call physicians clinicians than providers. Yeah, well, it's, that's why that's why I put it in quotes, but it's become a um, it's sort of insurance term, which I understand, right? Because we, we're providing that care, but I think it's important what our, our role is in society and for, for patients, actually, most physicians still like to be called doctor. I mean, it's, it's you know, we're moving too far away from those Marcus Welby days. <laughs> yeah. So just so my, um, the audience knows you know, a little bit about you, you're a hand and upper extremity orthopedic surgeon. And how many years have you been in private practice? And how many years did you work uh, at a hospital? Yeah, it's a quarter century now. I've always been in private practice. I, uh, I have a lot of respect for my colleagues going to academia where they're teaching more and more research, but but I've done those roles, and I think you can do that in private practice. And um, one of my concerns is that is a kind of a dying of the pressures that, that I talk about in the book. So I've always been in practice. I co-founded a group called Miami Hand Center, which, which uh, grew to the point where, like many physician practices, disbanded, like divorced, but it's all good, and I started my own center. And then afterwards, I thought a need for something beyond my practice, which I'm sure we'll talk about, which is ortho now. So my hand and upper limb practice called Badia Hand to Shoulder Center. All right. So you're based in Miami, Florida. And like you said, you have three companies. You have your private practice clinic. You've got a surgery center. And then is it urgent care and ER or just ER for orthopedics? 
Well, you know, it, the, the term is orthopedic urgent care, but what's interesting is we, we moved away from that term because people assume that it's all urgent, and it, it isn't. We have people coming in with, you know, two years of back pain. I want to be pain, so what it is is easy access. So we call it orthopedic walk-in center. And then uh, reading your book, uh, you started these as an entrepreneur to make the most efficient use of your time and make your surgery schedule more efficient for you and, and take more control of your compensation, as well as provide better care for your patients. And I'm assuming at uh, more economical cost than going to the doctor or, as you mentioned, um, going through the route of the primary care physician first, just to go through a bunch of unnecessary therapy and, and things like that. Yeah, there's just uh, so many hurdles that patients have to jump over to get care nowadays. And it's... Uh... Because I see a lot of international patients, and ironically, they go through less of that than we do. So we're we're continuously making our own healthcare system more complex. Even though I I firmly believe, as a proud American, that we really have some of the best, if not the best, healthcare in the world. But that it, it's become so cumbersome. So that was the goal. That well, at least with ortho now is for people to start the journey in the right place. And then if if something is complex, or then they would be routed to somebody like myself. If it's a knee problem, they would see my colleague who sees almost exclusively knee problems, right? I mean, kind of who you want treating, you know, if you have a, a, you know, if you have a liver problem, you want to get to that liver specialist, right? That's the paradox about healthcare is people think that the specialists are more expensive. Um, you know, Atul Gawande, who I love his books, but he just came out with an article talking about primary care. And yes, we need primary care doctors, of course, but medicine's become so complicated that I, I really believe the role of specialty care needs to increase because paradoxically, it's actually less costly in many cases because we, we actually order less tests. We just have a gestalt for what the problem is. So that genesis of, of kind of me building this center where patients come here, they park right here. I'm looking at the parking lot. They walk in and they, they get the right care. And that's become um, almost an ethereal, nebulous kind of Thing to achieve nowadays, and it shouldn't be that way. Well, and I see that your uh, clinic is strategically located by the Mi- Miami International Airport. Is that to make it easy for people to fly in and see you? I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah, um, that that was definitely in my mind, but I'm also in, in very centrally located now. It's a small city uh, called Doral. It's just west of the airport. It's right near the Trump Doral Hotel. <laughs> uh, and uh, the interesting thing is, it's in the the only real industrial area of Miami-Dade County. So I'm literally minutes away from a bunch of manufacturing facilities. There's about 400 aviation companies here. There's 100 flower businesses, flowers that come in from Latin America and they get packaged here. So all these, at least for me as a hand surgeon, typically only work a few minutes from here. Just makes sense. Uh, Before I was in a very residential part near one of the big hospitals, but most of my patients were traveling to get there. So it just, this, this location really makes a lot more sense. And if you don't mind, um, can you share with the listeners, you know, when you decided to pursue a career in medicine and how you chose orthopedic surgery and specifically your subspecialty of hand surgery and upper extremities? I think like many physicians, it, it's almost a calling. I, don't, I can't recall, I talk about it in a book. I, I, my initial interest was in something sort of scientific zoology, then, uh, you know, like a lot of kids, I love dinosaurs, right? And I, so paleontology, but then, then it, it quickly moved to maybe veterinary medicine. And by the time I was eight years old, I was pretty 
clear about what I wanted to do. So I, I don't know why that is, but I did have the, let's just say the pedigree because my, my mom's family in Cuba were many physicians. So a great uncle of mine was an internist who studied at the, at the Sorbonne University of Paris. And not that I was that close to him, but there was always that undercurrent of uh, healthcare in my family, the maternal side. So when I was eight, I went with my grandmother who had a very bad rheumatoid arthritis. I mean, just terrible deformity in her hands. And we went to see a hand surgeon at Columbia Presbyterian. Now, at the time, I didn't know who he was. But 20 years later, I figured out that it was Bob Carroll. Uh, and Bob Carroll was really one of the first hand surgeons in the country. And uh, ironically, Bob Carroll trained a surgeon named Joe Imbriglia, who was then in Pittsburgh. And Joe Imbriglia trained me. And he was one of my main mentors in hand surgery. So that person treating my grandmother was kind of my grandfather of hand surgery. Very nice. So I'm, I'm really enjoying reading your book, Healthcare from the Trenches. It does give a, a, an interesting perspective that I don't think a lot of us are not aware of. And, you know, while the frustrations with the healthcare system is apparent inspiration, what made you decide to finally publish the book and share your experience? And you did it more very recently because um, you did it during COVID. So it's, it's a recent published book. Yeah, I, I guess um, every Monday, you know, I see I see is my new patient day, my elective patients. And and I, I kind of came to realize that every patient that came to see me had already been somewhere. And I thought, look at the amount of money and time that was spent. And I, and I thought it was very symbolic of our healthcare system. So I, I started thinking about all the problems. And I don't know if, you know, entrepreneurs are born or made, but I just feel like like I want to fix a problem, you know, it's like those traffic lights that are not synchronous, right? You look at it and you go, how can I fix this, right? But I don't know anything about that, but I know something about healthcare. And I said, maybe this just needs to be conveyed to the public. So uh, I've been thinking about penning this, this, putting it down on paper. And then I wrote a chapter in a book, the book about breast cancer, Experts in Pink, it's called. And Experts in Pink is a woman's, woman's guide to breast cancer. It's an excellent book with multiple chapters, and I, I had been asked to write the, the chapter on, on the effect of breast cancer and treatment, or radiation, mastectomy, et cetera, uh, on the upper limb. And then when there was an event for the multiple authors, I met the, uh, the, the person who helped them publish the book, and I told her about my idea for a book. And this was only a year, year and a half, two, two years ago now, maybe. And she said, oh, my gosh, she said, you know, my, my father is a retiring vascular surgeon and in Philly, in Philadelphia, and, he, and he's so frustrated. And I said, well, you know, would you help me write this book? Because I, I just don't know how to even start to organize it. And, uh, and that's what happened. So I wrote myself about 85% of the book. The other 15% are about 25 other contributors, including uh, her father, who, who's a vascular surgeon. Uh, but I had some patients right. I had a hospital, an orthopedic hospital executive right. I had uh, other specialists. I had uh, a therapists, uh, nurses. So basically to give the perspective from the trenches. Okay. So I did not, you know, interview the, the president of Blue Cross Blue Shield. I did not interview, you know, the, the, all these middlemen. Uh, what I wanted to, to say is that people actually do the work of healthcare and receive healthcare what their perspective is or our perspective and what the problems are. So I had been writing the book gradually, but mostly collecting the other contributors' comments. And then when, when lockdown hit, 
I, I said, well, this is my chance. <laughs> I literally sat at my computer for 12, 14 hours a day for, um, for about 10 weeks and wrote almost the whole thing in, in that time. And we released it in uh, second week of June. That's impressive. And I think we should start discussing the government interference um, impeding healthcare. But, uh, you know, do you want to describe in general, just kind of an overview to start with the root causes of health, the healthcare crisis to the listeners from your perspective as a clinician, and then we can move into specifically the government interference? Sure. Well, you know, I, I talk about government and, and we all have different views, right? It's, the point being, though, is that, is that uh, a government serves a lot of roles, but I, I don't think that government is, is perceived by, by most people as being the most efficient provider of, of, of services and goods, right? And I think it's important to have partnerships with government and for government to do oversight, right? To keep, you know, they're, they're really there to keep us safe and, and protect citizens, right? But the, the free market and, and free enterprise, I think, is what makes this country great. And if you look at systems around the world, I mean, when it's a completely government run, it's very inefficient. And ultimately, you end up getting a second tier. Right? So I have colleagues in Europe, and, and most of them are in the public hospitals during the day. But then about 5 o'clock, they go and they, they open their little office and see patients privately. Because people don't want to wait a year like our Canadian friends yeah. right, for that. So, so I, and I think Americans won't put up with that. I think in many respects, we, we're a little spoiled. We, we, we are the richest country in the world, and, and, and we have great health care. But I don't think that the government is, is the one we should look towards. And certainly, if, you, if you've ever worked in a VA hospital like I have when I was a resident, and I, I, I used to moonlight in the emergency room as an ER doctor, and I can tell you that it is not a very efficient place, the VA. Um, so why should, we, why should we have our whole system like that? And for the book, I myself read and researched and learned a lot. So several of the books I read, including one called... Um, the one I'm thinking of is the case for free market healthcare. So it's a colleague of mine, another orthopedic surgeon, actually another Cuban-American surgeon who wrote the foreword to my book. And he outlines the arguments about why the government should not be the primary uh, healthcare giver. And there, we don't have time to go into all the, the details, but it is really not let the free market, uh, quality, efficiency, all of those things which are great for healthcare like any other business will ultimately win out. And the more regulations you have, the more red tape, all that's going to do is increase cost and put barriers between myself and my patients. And there, there really is no need for that. You know, we'll see what happens now in the, in the current administration, but I'm, I'm hoping to see us moving towards that because there is a huge movement towards, towards free market healthcare. Let the, let the market determine the cost and, and transparency in costs, which is something we certainly don't have right now. No, Absolutely. And in your book, you describe the history of government intervention, you know, starting with the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services and then HMOs, HIPAA, the Affordable Care Act and Stark Law. So in your opinion, where would you start moving the needle with the government to improve healthcare efficiencies and delivery of care? Well, the theme throughout the book, if you notice, is that you've got to get people in the trenches involved, right? Right. You know, you, you cannot have figureheads like Dr. Fauci or... Or, or, you know, or Sanjay Gupta, who are very smart people, but they're not doing this every day. You need to get people who are actually in the trenches working towards solution because we know what the problems are. And, you know, in order to fix something, you have to identify the problem. The, uh, the government, I, as I mentioned, should have oversight and it should also be a safety net for those who are less fortunate. 
But if we can increase the efficiency and the cost savings in the way healthcare is currently delivered, there'll be so much money left over that we can literally treat the people in most need of the lower socioeconomic classes, the people who don't have the funds maybe, to uh, we can literally give them healthcare. There needs to be a combination. But right now it's so costly that then it's difficult to, to treat the, the masses. There just has to be less of that you know, regulatory environment. You saw this with the, the vaccine, right? All of a sudden now we, we rolled it out pretty quickly. Why? Because we, we made sure still that there was that there was oversight, there was safety, but we, we really minimize the red tape for, in order to, to minimize human suffering with this uh, terrible pandemic. And there's no reason the entire healthcare system shouldn't be like that. So we need to really get rid of a lot of the middlemen. There's just way too many middlemen in healthcare who are taking money out of the system, who aren't really contributing, uh, but they're also making the process less efficient. And when you don't have efficiency, what do you have? Delay and cost. And that's the basic problem. So one other thing I would do is actually take private insurances. And I, I believe there's a role for private health insurance for sure. But I really think it should be non-for-profit. I don't think that you know United Healthcare should be looking to Wall Street and to their to their investors to make a profit. Uh, and if they are successful, then I think the executives deserve to be paid very well. I have no problem with that. What I have a problem with is is having to answer to Wall Street when you're providing something as vital as healthcare. And just changing that, like I should mention the the last chapter, right, where I I, I discuss one country that already does that. And uh, your readers can look into that. But there are several countries that have private health insurance, but it is not for profit. That alone would dramatically change the cost of healthcare. Well, and also, I think getting the people that that aren't physicians, or like you said, there's internal medicine physicians making decisions on specialty, you know, things that are in the subspecialties and the specialties, you know, I think I think it's the decision making on this not being made by the appropriate healthcare physicians that need to. Yeah, well, there's so much to know now in medicine. I mean, I'm an orthopedic surgeon, but I, I you know, I'll have a friend or something ask me about their back, and okay, <laughs> some question. But I, I say, you know, I, I haven't really worked up back pain in, in in over 25 years. You really and and somebody who does that every day, they can just listen to you. And already have a good idea. I mean, any good physician, whether it be an internist or an orthopedic surgeon, an ophthalmologist, can oftentimes come up with the most likely diagnosis just by listening to the patient, looking at the, the demographics, looking at certain characteristics, and, and listening to them. And then the physical exam is more confirmatory. And then all these tests, which cost a lot of money, and I talk about diagnostic tests, be more almost confirmatory. I mean, occasionally I'll order something where I have no idea. But for the most part, I have a good idea just from my experience. And why? Because all I do every day is from here to here. Right. Okay. And, you know, somebody does foot and ankle, uh, that's a whole different ballgame. So why get people who, uh, and they think they're saving costs, right? That, you know, they're getting the, you know, the gatekeepers or the primary care, but they're really not saving costs because a lot of these people end up ordering a lot more tests than are necessary. And I, I have, you know, I, I talk about uh, clinical examples of that in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is common sense stuff. Um, and, and that's what it's really going to take to change our approach in healthcare. Just bring some common sense to it. 
Well, and, and I encourage the listeners to to read your book and learn about the other you know regulations involving HCAP scores and the JCHO and how insurance companies and hospital purchasing departments choose medical devices to use and not surgeons. But reading the book as a patient, you know, I feel really vulnerable to the agendas of these hospitals and insurance companies unless I pay out of pocket, select my doctor, um, you know, discuss the procedure, get second opinions, and even you know, and this is where it's going. I mean, as a patient, you have to be a, a smart consumer, you know, and, and if you need a medical device, you know, I, I feel like I'd have to do the research because you're saying, you know, the hospitals, they, from a contractual standpoint, they don't necessarily want to go with the best device. They want to go with the easiest to contract with and easiest, you know, from a, you know, accounting standpoint, instead of coming up with another contract with a smaller manufacturer. And is this an accurate feeling of how I should feel? Well, the, but the honest truth is that most clinicians are, we are, I think, fairly responsible. I mean, we, we have kind of been weeded out, right, in society. I mean, you know, you don't train and study for 14 years and then, and then be totally irresponsible. Although, although there are cases, and I mentioned that in a book as well, I mean, there are bad apples. But I think most people in healthcare certainly care about our patients, but we also care about cost. We're very responsible about that. You know, I, I can give you examples of complex risk fractures where I'll use uh, this is a, a case I just did the other day where I, I'll, I'll, I'll use a particular plate and screws. This is a company from uh, Switzerland. Amazing stuff. But if I get a, a more routine fracture, there's a different company I use. It's manufactured in Austria, and they have a headquarters in, in the U.S., and it's much more economical. But it depends. It's for me to decide. And I can do something that's less costly. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. Because, well, you know, what's really expensive is when you use the wrong thing. <laughs> And any hospital administrator will tell you that the big loss leader there is readmission. So it's not just readmission, but reoperation. But one of the things I do in my practice here in Doral, Miami, is I see a lot of patients who've been treated elsewhere by maybe general orthopedists who are doing things that, you know, it's okay for the more routine things. When you have something very complicated, you really want somebody who does it every day. And that person should determine what implant they use. Ultimately, that will save money. Exactly. You know, if I ever need to have a surgery, I want to go to the surgeon that specializes and, and, you know, if it's a short surgery, you know, pretty much packs their afternoon and they just do it one after another, like a conveyor belt, because you know, they're, they're perfecting their craft. Yeah, I always tell my patients, you know, if you, you know, you'll get people who will complain about a weight. I, thank God I don't have that anymore. Cause I'm not on every, I'm not on all these insurance and HMO plans. But there was a time when I was, and there's nothing wrong with that because it, it gave me more volume and trained me to be a better surgeon. But uh, I would tell patients, you know, if you go to a, a surgeon's waiting room and it's empty, you know, run. You, you, want, you want somebody who's busy. And, and you know, it, it's okay to wait sometimes. <laughs> I go, you know, you don't mind waiting for Dumbo when you go to Walt Disney World with your kid. You wait an hour and a half for a three-minute ride. Yeah. And nobody seems to mind that. But, you know, to wait for a specialist you can see is busy with other patients where's the impatience coming from? Exactly. <laughs> so it, it's, it's like anything else. Things of high quality mean sometimes you might have to wait for. And, and they might be a little more costly, but in the end, it's like good shoes, right? You, you pay less uh, in the long run when you, have something, when you have something of quality. No, absolutely. You know, you discuss in your book how you've had to pivot your practice to focus on patients as a result of navigating the healthcare system, you know, in the least frustrating for amount possible for you and um, more efficient. You know, you talk about 
going to a hospital and if you have to use a hospital's OR, you end up getting bumped sometimes for, for other surgeries. And, and then also, you know, you wait around and for an OR to get prepped and nobody takes into account that time, which can be hours on end and you don't get compensated for it. Oh, it was, I mean, I remember those days. It, it just doesn't. And, and I think COVID is going to be a game changer in this industry and many, I'm sure yours as well. It, there is a real reset and I think finally, and I've been, I've been beating this drum for years now, is that there's a lot of type of surgeries that really should be done in efficient, cost-effective ambulatory surgery centers. You don't need to do, you know, a, a rotator cuff repair or a bunionectomy in a big hospital where you have all these costs of an ICU. Let the hospital focus on what they're good at. They're going to do their open heart surgeries or complex neurosurgery. To, in orthopedics, they're going to do the femur. We don't do femur fractures and our outpatient center, right? But the, these other surgeries, there's no reason for them to be done in a hospital. It's just, it's more costly. There's higher risk of infection. And all it is will lower the overall healthcare costs is allocating things where they, where they really belong and where it's mo- most efficient. Well, are you conflicted sometimes as a healer because you know that there's more patients that you can treat, but just because of, you know, the frustrations and you mentioned that you, you, because of mal- there's malpractice concerns, you you focus on workers' comp and you keep pivoting, you know, your practice. I mean, do you feel that, you know, if the, the system changed, you, know, you could really help a lot more people? I think so. But look, one other thing is we need to make sure that we don't have a, a, a deficit of physicians because it's very hard to predict that. So now we're really in a shortage. And I, I, I want to give a shout out to my, um, you know, what they call our uh, mid-level providers. I mean, uh, my physician assistant, you know, honestly, I think she knows more about hand than my colleague who does spine surgery. And the person that works with him knows more spine than I do because they're doing it every day. So I think there's a huge role for nurse practitioners and PAs and, and other clinicians who, who can really bring more care to, to the patients so that then the people like myself who can focus on really the, the more complicated stuff have time to do it. I shouldn't be bogged down with seeing every patient with shoulder pain. I should be seeing a patient that we determined has a full thickness rotator cuff tear that needs a repair. And that's the same with every other specialty. My goal as I mature is to really give back and be able to go either in, in underserved communities here in our own country or abroad. I mean, I've done work in Ghana and in Guatemala and Bolivia, and uh, that's very rewarding. Unfortunately, we're in a country where we have the resources. If we allocate them better, we have the resources to be able to treat everybody. I'm grateful for you tuning in to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast with others. As a disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended for specific real estate investment advice.